What is up, guys? Welcome to The Real Build. I'm your host, Bill Ryman, your broker builder. What I'm going to be doing with this show is actually showing you guys what exactly you need to look for prior to buying, building, selling, or even renting a home. I'm going to bring in some of the top people in the industry so we can dive deeper into discussion about these topics and really give you guys the tools you need to learn and know prior to making one of the biggest purchases of your lifetime. So with that being said, guys, welcome to The Real Build. So welcome to The Real Build. I'm your host, Bill Ryman, your broker builder. And today I have a guest coming from nearby Clearwater, Florida. Prior to starting his own practice, he was an associate attorney at one of the largest lender foreclosure firms in Florida. There he learned how to prosecute foreclosures quickly and efficiently, representing lenders such as Freddie Mac, the Department of Veterans Affairs, Chase, Countrywide, and many other subprime lenders in all aspects of foreclosure, litigation, bankruptcy, and loss mitigation negotiations. In 2004, he left the plaintiff side of the practice to form a law firm focused on helping homeowners keep their homes. After building a successful multi-practice firm, he founded Yesner Law, again, with the focus of helping homeowners save their homes or get rid of their homes while incurring minimal liability. His experience at two successful big firms, both plaintiff and defendant allows Yesner Law to represent its clients with big firm experience at small firm prices. He's also a speaker, an author, and a podcast host. Sean Yesner, welcome to The Real Build. Thank you for coming on. How are you doing today? Good, good. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you can come on. Uh, like me and you talked about before the show started, I'm looking forward to this because uh, obviously you cover... A lot of the department that I'm in as far as construction and real estate, so I'm looking forward to dropping some value here for my customers and my listeners that are all real estate people or looking to buy real estate or build homes, so glad you're you're on here. So yeah. Awesome. So I like to get started with, you know, I always ask everybody this first question about your background, so let's talk about who is Sean Yesner. So I think the first thing is I am a, a true legitimate Florida native. So uh, I was born uh, here in Tampa, uh, raised in Miami. I moved down to Miami before I was one or right around when I was one. The, my parents moved down to Miami, uh, which is where they finished high school and whatnot. So I grew up in Miami, uh, went to Florida State undergrad, uh, and then left the state of Florida to go to Birmingham, Alabama, law school called Cumberland School of Law, part of Samford University up in Birmingham, Alabama. And so that was really uh, the only three years I spent outside of the state of Florida. Other than that, uh, you know, you can take the boy out of Florida, but you can't take the Florida out of the boy. So uh, I'm a legitimate, true, born and raised in Florida native. Nice, nice. Yeah, that's a rare thing down in this state, as you know. You never, I mean... (laughs) Yeah. It's, that's yeah it's i've i've been i've been down out here pretty much my whole life i'm originally from illinois but yeah it's rare to find a true floridian these days down in this state as you know very yeah. seasonal my yeah. uh my wife is from indiana so she's not she moved down here when she was in high school uh although both of our boys now having been born here in uh in clearwater actually so both of my boys are are also florida natives as well oh nice there you go 
<laughs> well, I want to let's dig a little deeper into you because I mean, let, let's you you how did you get start? So you're in law. How did you get started in it? What was your reason for choosing to you know get into law over other industries? So let's go into that. What got you started in it? Why sure, why you, you choose? Do you want the uh, do you want the the story that I tell publicly, or do you want the real story? Let's hear the real story. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I a lot of times I joke. My my father uh, is a CPA. He's now retired. He's been retired as we record this, probably about six, seven tax seasons. He's been retired, although hopefully he's working on my tax return right now. Uh, but uh, he was a CPA, is a CPA, had his own business. So there's al- always this sense in my family of when you graduate high school, what college are you going to go to? When you graduate college, what advanced degree are you going to get? It it was sort of a, just a a way things were. There's a lot of doctors in my family. There's a lot of CPAs in my family. There's a lot of uh, professionals in my family. Uh, Ironically, I'm the first attorney, but um, there's a lot of professionals in the family. So there was always that sense of what do you want to do? What profession, what career uh, do you want? And so my senior year in high school, I took a law class as one of my electives. And one of the projects that we had to do for that law school, for that law class was interview an attorney uh, and, and do a report for the class on the attorney that we interviewed. Well, with my dad's connections, he set me up with a tax attorney who had actually argued in front of the United States Supreme Court. And so I went out to his office and I, and I interviewed him and I thought it was fascinating. He had started as, a, as, as an IRS attorney representing the IRS against taxpayers and then uh, switched sides and started defending taxpayers against the IRS. And that's what led to his uh, appearing in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. And I just thought it was fascinating the way that, that he did his career, followed his career. And so I've told people that since high school, I've known I wanted to be an attorney. Um, the other story that I tell, which also has some truth to it, the other story that I tell is that in that law class, we had our school's mock trial team. And so the, the, the teacher had three law classes throughout the day. And so each one of the three law classes had a mock trial. And then she took the best people from that mock trial to be on the school's mock trial team. And so for my class, my role was the attorney for the plaintiff to do the direct examination of the plaintiff, to get the plaintiff on the stand and, and ask him questions to prove up the, the plaintiff's case. And so I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, it, you know, today looking back on it, I had no clue what I was doing. But I sat down and I, I wrote out some questions and I wrote out some answers and and we drilled and we practiced. And then when when it came time for the trial, I got the witness on the stand and I asked him the questions and and we I thought we did a great job. I, I don't even remember if we won or lost the trial, but I thought we did a great job. Well, the teacher picked my witness to be the school's mock trial witness because of the job he did. Uh, and so I got so mad at that. I said, I'll show you. And so, you know, maybe p- a part of my career is also based on spite. But um, I- I've known, like I said, since high school, I've known my undergrad degree was in accounting. And that was purely for well, two reasons. Number one, I had a free tutor and dad at home who anytime I had an accounting question, I could give him a call. But number two, I always had been drawn to numbers and had law not worked out. Uh, I probably would have gone on and got my CPA and 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 become a CPA. Um, I did graduate with a degree in accounting. I'm not a CPA. I'm not qualified to be a CPA. I'm not even qualified. I need to take uh, some additional classes if I were to want to sit for the CPA exam. But 
the accounting backgrounds come come in really helpful, especially as we get into more of what the law firm does. Having that numbers background has been a huge help to me. Oh, yeah. I guarantee having that numbers background. I mean, in any business, too. I mean, having accounting, it's it's a hard degree to, or, you know, to have, too. But I mean, hearing hearing your story, I mean, it's it's, you know, how you went from growing up in the family you did to being in law. It's it's pretty it's actually pretty cool uh, to hear. I mean, you know, I came from a background in construction. I've always grown up in it, to be honest, when I was a kid working in it, I hated it, you know, and, <laughs> and I've said this in the past too. I mean, with my story, digging ditches and doing stuff like that, I just never thought I would be in the business I am. And now I'm in construction and real estate because you learn it. And that's kind of what you did. You, you, you knew something, you branched off into another and it's benefited you tremendously too. Yeah, well, it, it, very similar to so my dad was a partner in some of the largest CPA firms mm-hmm. uh, in, in the world. And at one point, the firm that he was at ended up shutting down. And so he went off on his own with three uh, of his other partners and formed a CPA practice. Okay. The attorney that he had me interview in, in high school uh, worked for the IRS and then went off on his own and switched sides. And so my career uh, mirrors that as well. I mean, like you said in the bio, um, I I went into law school wanting to use this the accounting background to work for the IRS, to be an attorney for the IRS. That was my my goal going into law school. I got into law school and I caught the litigation bug, and so I wanted to be in court and I wanted to be doing open art opening arguments and cross examinations and all that kind of stuff. I came out of law school and the first guy that offered me a job did real estate, and so I'm a real estate attorney, um, and and that transition then to a job here in Clearwater in 2001, working at what we would call a foreclosure mill. You said in the introduction, working for Freddie Mac and Chase and, and some of the largest um, prime and subprime uh, mortgage companies, you know, taking away people's houses. In 2004, the boss said, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm shutting the firm down. And so very similar to that attorney I interviewed, very similar to my dad's career path, I was faced with a choice six years out of law school. And I said, what the heck, let me switch sides and see if I can slow down foreclosures. And that was the birth of the law firm. Nice. Yeah. And that was getting into my next question right there. So in 2004, you founded Yesner Law, again, with the focus of helping homeowners save their homes or get rid of their homes while incurring minimal liability. So just explain this a little bit more in detail, um, going off of what you were just saying. Yeah. So when I joined that foreclosure firm in 2001 that gave me exposure prior to that I was working in Miami and I really only knew title closings Mm -hmm. uh, transactional kind of stuff but getting into that foreclosure firm I learned a lot about litigation I learned a lot about uh, civil procedure I learned a lot about uh, bankruptcy evictions title title claims title issues I learned all about that aspect of the real estate Uh, my fastest foreclosure from list pendants until foreclosure sale was 97 days. And so when the boss shut down the firm, I thought to myself, well, I know how to do them quickly. And, and mm-hmm. again, this is 01 to 04. So this was, you know, you, you, would, you would get the uh, valuation of your property in the morning. And if you got a second valuation of the property at night, it'd be 10 grand more. So, you know, houses were appreciating quickly. Reinstating loans was easy. Resolving foreclosures was easy. Um, but still it was that aspect of, I know how to do them quickly. Let me see if I can turn all that on its ear and slow it down 
not in a sense of, I'm one of these defense attorneys, I don't buy into the standing arguments and I don't buy into the who holds the loan and and robo signing and and all that stuff that we encountered in the in the recession starting in you know 2007 2008 and part of the reason is because none of that stuff impacts how the whether the borrowers did or did not make their payments and so that's what I'm really getting at can I defend can I throw some monkey wrenches into the foreclosure long enough to get my clients to a resolution can I throw the monkey wrench in there long enough to get them a loan modification to get them a short sale uh, to to get them into a bankruptcy and use the bankruptcy to resolve the house situation. It, it's not delay for the purposes of delay. It's delay for the purposes of getting to a resolution for the client. And so that's the basis upon which uh, I built the law firm. So pretty much you were a busy guy in 2008 when everything. Yeah. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, I think I'm going to be busy uh, yeah. for the rest of this year and next year as well, but we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. And then we're going to get into that a little bit too. Um, cause that's, I mean, right now is the time and, and me and you were talking about it before this, that it's a lot of uncertainty out there too. And, and hopefully, you know, pray that this doesn't last as long as they're saying, you know, and we get this thing, whole thing fixed. But yeah, unfortunately, like you said, I think some, uh, yeah. And, and people have asked me my thoughts and, and I'm, I'm sort of keeping them to myself because it's highly, it's a highly charged, highly emotional situation. So my personal feelings, my personal uh, observations, I really don't think any of us are going to be able to, to gauge what is true, what is overhyped, what is underhyped. I don't think any of us are going to be able to gauge that until this whole thing is over and behind us. And then we can make up our, our minds. But you know, I think at, at this stage, better safe than sorry. Mm-hmm. You know, I highly agree. And I mean, a lot of people have opinions on it too. Nobody really knows what's going to happen. I mean, you can listen to the media, you can listen to, um, you know, go on C- CNBC, listen to some of those guys on there. I mean, everybody's going a different direction. So I think that's what's making people a little bit more crazy to be honest, you know, because everybody has a different opinion on what's to come. We don't know what's what's to come. I mean, uh, it's it's hard to predict. I mean, we got an election coming up in November. Is he going to try and solve everything by that election time? It is politics too. We hope you know everything gets solved a lot faster than that because unfortunately, there's a lot of businesses that are going to go out of business, and a lot of people may, you know, may start losing their homes because it's like that domino effect, as you know. So yeah, here locally, the malls are shut down. Well. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about that small business owner that has, you know, finally got enough money. They've got their store in the mall. The mall is closed for 30 days. They've got literally no revenue coming from that store for 30 days. I have a feeling that when the malls reopen or even if the malls reopen, Mm -hmm. uh, the stores that were there when it shut down may not be there. I hope they are for the sake of the economy, but, but realistically, they may or may not be there when those malls reopen. And it's like, you know, it's the unfortunate thing is it's that domino effect that the store owner doesn't pay the landlord. The landlord does pay the the mortgage company. And then the mortgage company is talking to people like you. So it's just, or not, or the landlord's talking to people like you. So it's just that domino effect, unfortunately. I mean, if they could knock this thing out and, and that uh, sooner period, which I know they're trying to, but there's so many question marks out, that are out there too. It's just, you, like I said, you, you can't even watch the news because 
you see the red, I was talking about this on somebody else's podcast the other day, you turn on the news and all you see is a red Bolton going across saying pandemic, you know, and they're just, it's just try everything is negative. Everything is scared to, you know, and then they have an actual tracker on the side of some of these news channels now of deaths, uh, infections, and this and that, and it's all in red. They don't have the cured people. They don't have, you know, and there's still, as we know, there's a lot of testing, you know, that still needs to happen for people. And, and it's, it's crazy. It's crazy times yeah. right now. And, you know, I, and, and that was one of the things that we faced in the, in the great recession back in, mm-hmm. in 2007, eight and nine is that, you know, I used to joke when it was over that every day I'd open up the paper and do a little happy dance because it was another article about how the market was crashing or this was crashing or the other. Now, I would never do that for this pandemic because that's mm-hmm. loss of life. But mm-hmm. but um, I, I am a firm believer in, you know, not taking in as much negative publicity, uh, not to say that it's not real, not to ignore it, not to to, you know, skirt safety none of that. It's not from that perspective. It's just from a perspective of there's only so much negative I can take in a day before, you know, I need, I'm, I'm exhausted at night with the amount of stuff that I do here in the office. And the last thing I need is negativity to come in. And, and I'm almost thinking about uh, a break from Facebook just to avoid the negativity, not because I don't believe it's true, not because I want to bury my head in the sand, just because I don't want the negativity bearing down on me 24 mm-hmm. seven. No, I'm, I highly agree. I mean, and I, I think, uh, it really does pull you away from the good things you can be doing or the accomplishments you can be making in business too. I mean, I'm, I'm going to have, I, I don't really ever watch the media to be honest. Like I, you know, times like this, you kind of get drawn to it, which it's weird. You know, you want to see what's happening. So you kind of have to turn it on, but on other forms, I don't even watch it because it always is negative. You know, why aren't they talking about the nice family of dolphins swimming through the sea anymore, you know, (laughs) or, you know, but it's just, oh, they they just, they'd rather show you something, you know, like this person got shot and killed here, this, this, and this. So, I mean, I, I think we're going through an interesting time. I think a lot of social media stuff, like you said, there's more people on social media than any time before. Uh, especially in past epidemics and past health crisis too, there wasn't as much social media, which spreads a lot of, you know, negativity and a lot of more people are in touch with everything too. And, you know, if whatever this is, if it is just a flu or if it is something serious, obviously social media is 10 X to, to people's right. fear, you know, that's the thing. So, you know, if somebody hears it has a news article, they share it, they say, okay, this is what it is. These people die. you know, it's just, it's just, it's a, it's a basically a streamline effect and it just goes down and branches out to more and more people. So. Yeah, yeah. no, I agree with you, but let's, uh, let's get back into, uh, that was a big topic, obviously right there. <laughs> a little bit of a tangent there. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's get back into talking about you and, and law. So let's talk about the different types of law you do, you know, uh, as far as the debt alternatives, real estate bankruptcy, I went on your website, these were your highlights. So let's just brush on these real quick. Yeah. So it all sort of stemmed out of the, uh, foreclosure defense. So it all, at least at the beginning, it all started with the foreclosure defense. Well, you can't understand how to do a foreclosure defense without understanding how bankruptcy might impact, you know, slow down the foreclosure. Are we going to use 
a chapter seven and, and get rid of the debt? Are we going to use a chapter 13 and save the house? So the, the foreclosure leads into the bankruptcy. The foreclosure also leads into the loan modifications because we need to understand how to walk our clients through a loan modification. What mm-hmm. documents are they presenting? All that kind of stuff. Also brings about issues of, of short sales, which, you know, again, I don't want to get off on that tangent again, but at least um, there, I only have, I think, one or two short sales pending in the office right now. I'm anticipating some more uh, as the year goes on, but uh, you know, you can't understand how the foreclosure works without understanding how the short sales are are the solution. So everything sort of grew out of that. Once I got into learning more and more about bankruptcy, bankruptcy, I, I tried to separate myself by saying bankruptcy is not the tool. It's not the hammer that fixes, you know, if, if you see everything's a nail, then you're always going to try to use a hammer. So, you know, what other options are there other than bankruptcy? And that's where we get into some of the debt settlement and negotiating with creditors and you proving that if somebody is uncollectible because all their stuff is exempt, you know, then maybe we don't need a bankruptcy. Uh, we just use it as another tool in the toolbox to help people that are, that are facing uh, debt. And so the way the firm is built, the way the firm has grown is that everything sort of, I guess, spirals out from there. In other words, you know, I'm not going to do family law because number one, I have family law attorneys that refer business to me, but number two, it doesn't fall within foreclosure. There may be foreclosure issues in terms of a family law case. You know, I'm not going to do probate and estate planning law because again, that, that doesn't impact whether you can or can't file bankruptcy. So, uh, and again, I have, you know, probate attorneys and estate planning attorneys that I can refer to. So I try to, I try to keep to what I know, which is helping people eliminate debt. And so that's, that's why the law firm is set up the way it is. And it's, like I said, it's, it's an area that I've, I've come to enjoy. It's an area that I think legally is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an, I like negotiating with people. I like, uh, I like helping people. You know, one of the ways that I know I've done a, a good consultation, one of the ways that I know I've helped somebody is if they leave here telling me, thank you, I, can, I, can, I think I can finally sleep tonight. Or, you know, thank you. I feel like I understand what's going on and I feel like I know what my options are. That's what drives me. So that's that's why, um, you know, I don't really ever foresee uh, me deviating from any of these tracks, so to speak. If I get stuff that's outside of that focus area, I've built a network of attorneys that I can refer to. Yeah. And I mean, you're also in an area that you're helping people with the biggest investment of their life. I mean, and and it's you're, you're helping people with something so personal too. I mean, it's, it's so important what you're doing, you know, that's the major part about it. Yeah. Obviously, you know, so, and I want to go, let, let's start talking a little bit more about real estate and construction. Cause obviously that's what this show's about helping Absolutely. people, showing people what to look for as far as real estate and construction industry. So throughout your legal career, you have guided numerous clients through some major real estate hurdles so let's just explain how you've done this in a few ways. In terms of, I've tried to set myself up that I'm not the type of attorney that wants to kill your deal. Yeah. I'm the type of attorney that wants you help you, wants to help you get your deal done. Now, if from a legal perspective, this is a bad deal and you shouldn't do it, I'm going to tell you that. But at the same time, I think I, I try to be in my practice more solution-based. So um, you know, I had a client call me yesterday on a construction issue. They, um, he, uh, it was a, a friend of mine who was building a new house and the tiles that they picked out were not the tiles that the builder, 
uh, installed. And so I didn't say blow up the deal and, and try to get your deposit and walk away, but I gave him a couple of tips, you know, first talk to the builder, show the builder, here's what, you know, here, here's the tile that you showed me that you were going to install in the house and look down and see what tile was installed in the house. They're not the same and try to get the builder to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, fix the tiles. If that doesn't work, try to get the builder to give you a credit on the price of the house, drop the price of the house a little bit and you offer to fix the tiles. The last thing I, I said, the last option that, and that we talked about the least amount of the time was sending nasty grams and suing and trying to cancel the deal and all this other kind of nonsense. So um, I'm really trying to help clients focus on getting to that ultimate solution rather than just fighting for the sake of fighting. Which is awesome too, because I mean, a lot of clients don't take that action of having somebody like you there to guide them from, because I mean, let's, let's face it, I'm in the building industry and there's, I deal with a lot of people that are, they're scared, you know, they think they're going to, we're going to screw them somehow, some way. I mean, we're more, we're more of a custom builder. So, but I still get the arguments of, okay, why is this, this price versus this price, you know, and it's just having somebody that middleman there like yourself that can deal with this and kind of calm them down is huge. It really is because a lot of like a lot of people freak out. I mean, on that story you just said, I, I got the wrong, they gave me a wrong tile. It's probably a cheaper tile. You know, that's, they're trying to screw me on the tile and, and right. make more money off of me. I could hear it now, you know, and that's where you came in and said, no, let's just work this out. We're not going to pull you out of the deal. We're not going to sue them. You know, that's what more people need. Right. Now, if we have to, I mean, let's face it, I'm an attorney, so I'm not, I'm not unfamiliar yeah. with the way the courthouse works. But if we can avoid that, let's, let's find a resolution yeah. without, without slugging it out. Exactly. I mean, that's the way it should be with everybody. But like I said, unfortunately, you got a lot of people that are because they have been screwed in the past. I mean, they've uh, right. and we we deal with a lot of down here, a lot of second homeowners. They built up north with a builder that might have screwed them. They end up coming down here. And they're, they're worried. I mean, they don't, they're kind of wary of what to do and, you know, who, who's going to, who's going to take advantage of me down here, you know, and they, I always just tell people, do your research. And if you're going to go with a builder, go with one that's been here a long time. They've been there a long time for a reason. They've been in business a long time because there's a lot of new guys that come and go, and especially now uh, that times, you know, we're good. Um, you know, and, and that's the thing. And you got every, every guy with a pickup truck that gets in the construction industry. So, well, and, and I I think that goes along with, you know, do your due diligence, you know, Mm -hmm. look up that they have all the proper licenses, look up that they have Mm -hmm. a, a, a Facebook page, a website, look at their reviews. Um, Mm -hmm. you can even, I don't don't know if I'm giving away anything or not, but you can also look up a a contractor's license with the state of Florida and see if there's been any complaints filed against them. So look at that kind of stuff as well. But, but yeah, I mean, dealing with a reputable builder is, is not a, I'm probably not giving away any kind of trade secret, (laughs) you know, just, just do your due diligence. Yeah. And the license thing too. I actually tell people that too, because I go, if a builder has been in court and sued and stuff like that, you could find out, I mean, you can look that stuff up so you should be looking that up yeah that's, know, a, and, that's another good idea you can also go you, you just type in whatever county you live in i'm here in clearwater which is pinellas county i live mm-hmm. in uh, west chase which is in tampa which is in hillsborough county but all you need to do is go to google and type in whatever the name of the county and then clerk of court after that that'll take you to the clerk's website 
I think every county in Florida, at least the majority of them, uh, have free information. Mm-hmm. You can go to uh, look up different cases that have been filed, put in the contractor's name. And if you see the contractor's fought, it has been a defendant or plaintiff in a lot of cases, that could be a red flag. Yeah. See that right there is gold. Cause I deal with all these people that are shopping some of these builders and I don't bash anybody. I just say, do your research, look right. them up. Half of them don't cause they look at the numbers and not the person and not the builder. So that's, and that's a whole different topic I've gotten into multiple times, but what you just said was gold. People need to do it. <laughs> Thank you. So what about real what about real estate? So you say real estate transactions are time sensitive and involve numerous pieces that must be well coordinated. In many cases, buyers or sellers can benefit from support, guidance, and knowledge of an experienced real estate lawyer. So how can they benefit? I think the biggest benefit that I bring to a transaction is the the lack of emotion. And mm-hmm. so let me let me explain that a little bit. So I am not as passionate about the house that's being built, but I am passionate about my clients who are passionate about the house that's being built uh, or, or the transaction or the house they're buying or whatever the situation is. So the clients are emotionally invested in what's going on. I am not emotionally invested in the substance of the dispute. I'm emotionally invested in the client. So I want to get the best result for, for the client. So I think where I and, and any other attorney really adds value is being able to take the emotion out of the situation and guide the client through what's going on. So I've said to a lot of people, unfortunately, I've had to say a lot of times, if the house is un, unaffordable, we need to start to think about ways to give it up, either a chapter seven or a short sale or a, let the bank take it in foreclosure, whatever. And a lot of people get really upset because that's my house. I can't, you know, I can't lose my house. I can't get rid of my house. Well, then that gives me the ability to take a step back and say, I get it, but it's really, it's a home. It's, it's brick, it's wood, it's steel, it's drywall, it's paint. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a, it's a thing. It's a structure where you live with your wife, with your kids, with your spouse, with your significant other, that's your home. That doesn't necessarily have to be that pile of wood and steel and brick and drywall and blah, 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 blah. So um, I can help take that emotion out of it, look at something logically, look at something from that third party angle and give the, you know, unfortunately, sometimes I get to give them advice they don't want to hear, but at least yeah. I can give it to them in a way that I'm, I'm still uh, emotionally invested in the client without being emotionally invested in the substance of what's going on, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. Cause, I mean, it, because you to take it's hard. I mean, what you do is hard, and and I give you a lot of credit for it. Because to deal with you know something like that, where the emotional attachment, most people are emotionally attached to their home. Me as a real estate broker, I deal with it, and especially with pricing a home. You know, if it's if I go in there and say, all right you know, this home should be at this price because it's a teardown. Somebody's going to go like this to me. Like, yeah, you know what <laughs> you're what you saying? You're going to rip my, <laughs> yeah. you're going to rip my home down, but this is my home. You know, you gotta, you gotta kind of tell them in a way, listen, you know, this thing isn't worth as much in a nicer way. There's ways of putting it long story short, but also on the positive, on the positive end of what you do too. I mean, you're, 
the process of dealing with an attorney over, let's say, a title company, I mean, you can streamline them during the whole closing process of a deal. Yeah. And, and you know, remember, that's how I got started was doing residential yeah. and commercial closings. And mm. so I know my way around to closing. It's, it's not, uh, not difficult. Um, yeah. the, the difference, I think, so interestingly, I did closings up until about two years ago. From the time I started back in 1998 up until about 2017, uh, 2018, I did closings, residential and commercial closings. A couple of years ago, I decided I, I owned a title company that I decided to shut down for a couple of reasons. Number one, it was getting harder and harder whenever I would compete against other title companies and grow the title company business, the law firm would lose out because I wasn't paying as much attention. When I would focus on the law firm and grow the law firm business, the title company would start to suffer because I wasn't paying as much attention. Uh, plus, I learned that uh, with my knowledge and experience in title, I was getting title companies that were potentially clients that have since become clients and friends. But there was always that angst of, am I going to compete with them? Am I going to take a closing away from them? So I've actually made more representing title companies than I have trying to do closings, at least in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. What a lot of people don't understand is that in Florida, a title company can do your closing. And most of them are good. Most every closing will go forward without any kind of trips up, trip ups or, or snags or whatever. Um, a lawyer can do the closing if they are licensed through a title insurance underwriter. Uh, but I think, again, the difference is the title company's role is to get the transaction closed. The title company doesn't represent the buyer or the seller. I'm, and I'm not saying, I don't want this to be misunderstood that I'm saying title companies are greedy to get the deal closed. But that's their role in the mm -hmm. process is to close the transaction. Now, they're going to help cure title issues. They're going to help settle disputes between buyers and sellers in some limited capacity. If, if that kind of stuff comes up, they're going to make sure all the documents are proper. They're going to you know do all of that kind of stuff. But if a seller approaches a title company and says, hey, here's my issue. What do you think? The title company can't, can't give them any kind of advice. That's where I'm different. So I will represent either the buyer or the seller, depending on, on who hires me. And I can walk them through the closing and I can take a look at all the documents. And so there are other attorneys, competitors of mine, uh, peers of mine, colleagues of mine that will also do closings, and mm -hmm. and that's and that's great. But I think the the main difference here in Florida between a real estate lawyer and a title company is that the real estate lawyer represents somebody, the the buyer, the seller, the title company, even where the title company's role is to get the deal yeah. closed. And I think that's the biggest difference. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a lot of great info right there because I personally use a real estate attorney because I, it's just, there's more to it and it's more, I feel more as, as the agent or as the broker, I feel more secure and feel like less, let's say nothing against title companies, but less bad <laughs> situations will happen. Let's put it that way. Yeah, well, with you being a custom home builder, there may yeah. be some other issues there too. Yeah, exactly. So um, I wanted to kind of just touch on these two real quick. You know, there's people that listen to this that are in the in, in a rental properties and investment properties or doing fix and flips and stuff like that. What do you recommend for any kind of legal protection on this? So I also, part of that, in learning foreclosures, I also got an introduction to the investor community. And so I, I also do represent real estate investors uh, in, in all the different transactions. And so 
my my advice is uh, to use either LLCs or land trusts. So use some some uh, other structure. Don't hold rent or rental property in your name individually. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that 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 probably are a little bit more than than the time we have allotted in the in today's show. But I would say if if you're an investor, your homestead, your primary residence, if you're in Florida should be in your name individually. I don't see anything wrong with that. Florida has a great homestead protection. But outside of that, if you have rental properties, if you have fix and flips, I would look into LLCs, I would look into land trusts, and then I would even say, if you have a certain number of properties that you're gonna hold and rent, and then another set of properties that you're gonna fix and flip, now you're talking about two LLCs, one for the buy and holds and one for the fix and flips, and that way they don't intermingle, you don't get, you don't get someone hurt on a fix and flip job that's now going to jeopardize your ownership of your, your uh, buy and holds. You're not going to get a tenant hurt at the buy and hold that's now going to maybe get access to some of the fix and flip money. And so that I can go, you know, I do offer free consultations. So if any listeners are real estate investors and they want to go over some of this stuff with me, uh, you know, shoot me an email, give me a buzz and, and we can go through this in a lot more detail. Yeah, because if we went into it in a lot more detail on here, we'd be sitting here another hour. So. <laughs> you don't want four-hour shows? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Probably the listener might. You know, I don't know if they got a four-four-hour car. Oh, actually, they might now because they might yeah. be sitting at home. So sitting at home, just waiting, looking for something to listen to. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So let's let's talk construction. Obviously, this is big to me. You know, building a custom home and and. I mean, you brushed on this a little bit, but I want to go deeper for my listener too, is because building a custom home is very costly, a huge investment that people are making. What can a customer do to protect themselves? So I hate to say this, especially <laughs> on your show, but I think that for the customer, um, seek out an attorney before you sign that custom home contract. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason I that I say that is those, as you know, those custom home contracts can be weighted heavily in favor of the builder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so talk to uh, an attorney just to read through the contract. The custom home contracts uh, are a lot of times different than the typical contracts that we use to buy and sell already built residential property and commercial property in the state of Florida. There, There's typically to a custom home contract, there's a little bit more substance to it. There's more pages to it. Um, I don't know about you, but I know that a lot of custom home builders are not too um, not too anxious to change any of those contracts. So if, a, if a, a customer comes to the home builder and says, hey, we need to change clause X to say this, the custom home builder may say no. And if you don't like that, I'll just sell this house to someone else. So mm-hmm. I think talking to an attorney, this may be one of, the, one of the situations where talking to an attorney before you sign the contract is probably a really good idea. No, I highly agree. I mean, our contract, our build contract's probably been to, I don't even know how many attorneys. I know locally every single one's seen it and they still change something on it just to change it, obviously. And, yeah. and you know, there's stuff, there's stuff, you know, us as a builder will accept, you know, and, and if they're going to spend the money on an attorney to do it, that's fine. And we'll accept it. We usually recommend them going to a Florida attorney because our build code in Florida you know, as you right. know, instead of taking it to some attorney up in Illinois or New Jersey, and then they just butcher the whole contract because they don't know our build codes. Right. So, um, well, and, and and don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that builders try to sneak things into the contract and that builders try to take advantage. I, I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm sure that the 
the builder contract that you use and probably most builder contracts in the state are, are fine. Mm-hmm. But there are quirks that are not mm-hmm. necessarily present in a house that's already been built that if you're not familiar with the contract, you may not know to look for it. You may not spot it if it's there. And so just to be aware of, of how the timelines work and, you know, like I said, how do I pick out the tile? And, and if I don't mm-hmm. like the tile, what do I do? And, you know, those types of issues that, that people aren't used to when they're buying a house that's already been built. Mm-hmm. No, I highly agree with you. Cause I've, I mean, people, ours has been, like I said, it's been added to by attorneys and it's kind of built our contract, you know, so our contract's gotten bigger in time. You know, I just recently, it's just, it depends on the person too. Cause I just had a guy, we do a lot of cost plus, And then I just had a guy that wanted to do cost plus not to exceed. Well, people that are you know, not familiar with that. That's basically capping our numbers. And there's a lot of uncertainty in a custom home. I know I, you can probably do that in a track home or something like that, where you know your exact numbers, but in a custom home, when you have to kind of have allowances for certain things on top of you have to, for trim carpentry and stuff, when you have a plan that wasn't really detailed enough either, then a decorator might be involved and they're changing ceilings and cabinets it's hard to do that and that's i kept telling this guy that too especially in uncertain times now now that we're going through what are costs gonna do you know is stuff gonna inflate in certain areas are they gonna come falling down we don't know so that's that was a situation with us to where we had to just basically in in other disagreements to tell the guy uh to go somewhere else because right just wasn't a right fit right so, um, what about uh, the builder side? Me and you were talking about this before you got on. What can a builder do to protect themselves from a homeowner that won't pay them? Let's go from the builder angle. So, I always start with the contract in any kind of real estate dispute. What does the contract say? And so, if it's a customer that's not paying, uh, what does the contract say? Does the contract say that you can keep the deposit and cancel the contract and sell it to the next person? Does the contract say that you? have to arbitrate or mediate? Does the contract say that you have to sue? Uh, everything starts with everything's governed by the contract. And a lot of times I'll tell people in a, in a real estate transaction, it, realtors will call me, home uh, buyers and sellers will call me. Can we do this? Can we do that? Well, you can put anything in a contract as long as it's not illegal. So I make the extreme example that you can say, at the closing, we all have to stand on our heads while we sign the documents. Well, it's not illegal to ask for that. So theoretically, you could put that into a contract. And if you had a buyer or seller that wasn't flexible enough to stand on their head and sign the documents, they'd be in breach. Um, You know, obviously, that's the extreme example. But I use it to make the point that as long as it's not illegal, you can put whatever you want in the contract as long as both sides agree to it. So that that's always sort of where I start. Uh, Florida also has, you know, the contractor lien laws. And so um, if this is a piece of property and you're built and the owner owns the property and you're building the house on the property, uh, there's always lien laws. You know, you can attach liens and claims of lien and notices of commencement and all those kinds of things to uh, try to foreclose the property ultimately if the homeowner doesn't pay. But um, I would always start with the contract. What does the contract say you can do? Yeah, because that's obviously the main thing. And the next one, though, is is big to me. So what about a, what about a subcontractor that doesn't finish work? You know, and me and you were talking about this because this recently just ha- happened with us and 
you got a subcontractor that's saying, well, you owe us the full amount of money versus uh, us saying, well, you didn't finish the work. So we're going to pay you for what you did and that's it. Yeah. And, and I think again, it, is there a contract between the contractor and the subcontractor? Mm-hmm. If so, that's going to control as the contractor. What I would be worried about is that Florida law gives the subcontractor rights. And so mm-hmm. theoretically, if the subcontractor isn't paid, uh, that subcontractor can also put a lien on the house and go after the homeowner directly. And so as a contractor, I would not want my subcontractors to go after my homeowners if if I'm not paying them. So you, you got to take a look at that real closely because there are also timelines for the subcontractors to be able to claim liens against the house. And as the contractor, my goal would be to try to, I don't want to say protect, but for lack of a better word, protect the homeowner from the claims of the subcontractors. So mm-hmm. everything comes down to the contract. I would also document I would also back everything up, you know, as we discussed today by telephone and you shoot them an email that talks about what you discussed, or here's a picture of, um, you know, all the stuff that you've left undone and here's a copy of the contract and you have maybe like today's paper laying on the job that shows the date that shows all the stuff that didn't happen. Um, Documentation and then going through the contract. But I would be really careful as a contractor um, to make sure and and I think partially that's why the lien laws are the way they are is because the Florida legislature said, well, if we put the homeowner in the crosshairs, that should cut down on disputes between the contractor mm-hmm. and the subcontractor. So I think that's the biggest red flag that I would suggest to a contractor is make sure you're not putting your, your client in jeopardy mm-hmm. uh, and make sure you document everything so that if the subcontractor is not doing what they're, they're supposed to do, you've got good proof, good evidence and good cause to, to terminate them. Yeah, and as far as lien laws, what is it? It's for them to lien a property. How how many days do they have? Uh, if I were, it's ninety days from the date of last work. Um, gotcha. So you know, if if as we record this, you know, on what, what to, on a Friday, so uh, you know, today's March twenty as we record, and so uh, ninety days from today. So if they say the date of last work was today, and so that also then becomes an issue as well. Is mm-hmm you know, the, the date you actually did something, Mr. Subcontractor was the 10th. Uh, but it will only took till the 20th till we fired you. So does the 90 day period start on the 10th Does it start on the 20th? And there's some factual issues there as well. So I think documentation for those kinds of purposes is also really useful. Mm-hmm. And then what about notice to owners too? just brush on those? If I recall correctly, notice to owners have to be given within 45 Five, days, yeah. I want to say. Um, within 45 days of uh, either prior to the work starting or even after the work starts Mm -hmm. 45 days. So I've had a situation where a sub, I was actually representing the sub who did the work, finished the work and then had to go. And and it was a quick job. It was a quick, it took me a couple of days, but then we had to go back and file the notice to owner after the work was done and then threaten the lien after the work was done and even though the, the owner and the contractor came back to me and said, but the work's already done, mm-hmm. but the law allows us up to 45 days after to file the notice to owner and then 90 days after the date of last work to, to place the lien. And then uh, it's a year to foreclose the lien unless the lien is challenged. And then there's different timelines there as well. So Yeah, because um, they have to file notice to owner before they can lien a property pretty much right. as well. Yeah, and then it has right. to be from the start of the 
work or is it the start of the construction just uh i, I think uh, it's the start of the construction yeah or the start of the i think those are may even be both the same term it gets a little yeah. factually yeah. where we got to dig into the facts a little bit but that's where in my case it was 45 days from the start of the work and even though the job took a day or two they still had 40 something days after the work was done to file the notice to owner mm-hmm. so okay. uh, and 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 it is the florida construction lien law is very very strict and so if you trip up along the way as a homeowner, you could be liable to, to the contractor and the subcontractor. As a subcontractor, you could lose your lien rights. As a contractor, you could lose your lien rights because uh, the lien laws is fairly strict and, and you need to comply with it. And that's why hiring somebody like you, once again, is so important. There you go. <laughs> so let's talk about, let's go into this next one. What are you doing to stand out from the many attorneys in your area? Obviously, we've talked a lot about a lot of great things you're doing, but what are some other things? Well, and I think that's where I make myself stand out. So first, mm-hmm. like I said, I, I used to represent banks. And so I still think I know how the banks think. And I still represent uh, private individuals that you know, maybe do seller financing. And so now they're stuck with a note and mortgage and a, and a buyer that won't pay them. There are some smaller banks that I still do represent. Um, the bulk of my work is representing homeowners, but um, I still am in the game in terms of being a plaintiff's attorney. So I can still say to um, owners that I know how the banks are thinking. And, and one of the myths that I can dispel right off the bat, the banks don't want your homes. They want money. Yeah. Now they'll, they'll file the foreclosure if they're not getting money. Um, and right now we got moratoriums and whatnot coming down anyway, but uh, the banks want money. They don't want your home. That is, it, it is absolutely a myth that someone says the bank just wants my house. So that's, I think that's the first thing I do to try to stand out is to say, you know, like I said, I'm here to get the deal accomplished. I'm not here to blow it up. I understand how the banks think. I've been on that side of the equation before I was doing foreclosure defense before it was popular to do so. But then as the firm uh, matured and evolved, that's where the podcast came into play. Every attorney has a blog, but very few have a podcast. And, and the few of my peers that do have podcasts either don't have one in the area of law that I do. So there's a lot of swapping going on in terms of interviews. And I know one or two uh, local attorneys here that tried to start a, a podcast in the bankruptcy field specifically and they didn't get beyond seven or eight episodes before they stopped producing content. So that's, that's the other thing is I've got the podcast, which is a big um, boost to the SEO of the law firm. And then the podcast, you mentioned in the intro, I'm also a self-published uh, author. The podcast is also what helped produce the content to create uh, the book. And both the podcast and the book, are the same. they're both called Crushing Debt. The podcast is available everywhere. The book is available on Amazon. And so it all sort of feeds together. And so it, it is a little bit, it, it's easy to set myself apart when I say I've got a podcast, I'm, a, I'm an author, I'm a published author. Um, and then, you know, just the perspective of having represented the banks before. Yeah. And all, all that's huge, especially you doing podcasting. Cause I mean, you, you can use that as a platform to reference things too. Like you can say, if somebody's asking you a question, you can say, Hey, you want to hear more? Go listen to episode you know, 200 about when I talked about that on that episode. So it, it's kind of, yeah, it's with good with SEO and your marketing and stuff like that too, but it's a good reference for you as well. And it's like you said, nobody else is doing it. Yeah. It's a great reference and it's a great networking tool. So, yeah, you know, yeah. you know I mentioned, I get 
referrals from family law attorneys and probate attorneys and to have them on the show to introduce mm-hmm. them to my audience is another way to motivate them to send me referrals over, you know, the next bankruptcy attorney in town. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So let's, let's talk about, you know, some marketing kind of jumping into that since we were just were, what are some other strategies you're doing as an attorney and what impact has it made on your business? I mean, I know you've done the book. I know you've done you. I, I brushed on it in the intro. I know you've done some speaking too and so on. I've done a lot of speaking. I, I enjoy public speaking and, and my public speaking is even, I've been doing it way before the podcast, although the podcast has made it easier to be a public speaker, but I do a lot of public speaking for construction groups, realtor groups. I've done continuing education for the Florida bar. Um, I've done continuing legal education for other organizations that do it. So I've done the speaking. I think the biggest uh, the biggest driver of business to the law firm is the networking that I do. And so I try to stay involved in the community. Uh, I'm the president of my homeowners association. And so as soon as we're done with this call, I've got a handful of things here to do at the office. And then I've got a handful of things to do for the homeowners association. And then I can go home. So I'm keeping my name in the community by volunteering for the homeowners association. You know, we talked about the kids. I've got two boys at home. Uh, I coach them both uh, in soccer and basketball. And, and, uh, I think my older boy wants to get into baseball. So I'll be doing, probably be doing that as well. Uh, and then the other traditional networking, I'm in a close contact networking group that one, a, a one person per profession, uh, networking group, uh, it's called BNI. A lot of people have heard of it. Um, business network international. I've been doing that since 04, since I started the law firm, I get nearly 40% of my firm's annual revenue comes from referrals that come out of that group. Nice. Um, I'm also, you know, to help stay in shape, I got to keep up with a, with an, at least as we record this, I got to keep up with an eight year old and a five year old. <laughs> so I, I do a lot of running and the run clubs have pretty, in fact, the shirt that I'm wearing now, I, I have the, the Yesner law shirt is on the front and on the back, it's the promotion of the podcast. And I especially bought it and designed it to be super comfortable for runners. And so uh, the runner community here in Tampa, uh, has embraced me. Uh, here in Tampa, we have, we just got done with Gasparilla. We have all the different Gasparilla crews. And so I joined a Gasparilla crew. Nice. So, you know, I, that's another way that that I've grown the law firm. A lot of it is by word of mouth and networking uh, rather than internet and SEO. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good for you. I mean, that's definitely the best thing too is as we all know, getting in front of people, networking, joining different groups, getting your, just getting your business out there. Cause you are your business. You are your brand. I mean, that's the thing you have in the brand you do is going to attract people to you, which is going to attract people to your business. Exactly. Plain and simple. So uh, one, one real quick thing I wanted to ask you, cause I always ask everybody on my show is what, what do you recommend customers do to help customers select an attorney based on, you know, the quality and who you are versus just going to an attorney for price, you know, because everybody does this in every business. They shop the numbers and not, you know, the actual, you know, you get what you pay for. I'm such a big believer in it. Huge believer in it. There's a story of uh, a guy who goes, there's a piece of equipment, a piece of industrial equipment that is shut down and the business that owns this equipment needs it to, uh, to, to function, to, to generate their product, to, to fulfill their orders. And so they call the repairman out. The repairman takes a look at the machine, grabs a hammer, 
hits the machine, the machine rolls back to life and it starts spitting stuff out. And they, their the business is so appreciative. And they say to this uh, repairman, you know, please, please give us your bill. The repairman pulls out a bill for a thousand dollars and they say a thousand dollars. All you did was hit it with a hammer. I want you to break down uh, that thousand dollars. And so the, the repairman takes the bill back and he scratches out a thousand dollars and he scribbles on it and he hands it back to the business owner. And it says hitting machine with hammer $1 knowing where to hit the machine with the hammer, $999. And, and I think that's sort of the point here is that, you know, I'll quote someone a price and they'll say, well, why is it that price? Well, you're paying for the experience of, of knowing how to guide you through these things, how to guide mm-hmm. you through the foreclosure, the short sale, the loan mod, the construction deal, the real estate transaction. You know, I've been doing this now for, for 20 years, 20 plus years. I started in 1998 when I passed the bar and graduated law school or reverse order, graduated law school, passed the bar. Um, and so I think I'm finally at the point where I can say I have enough experience that, that and, and again, I'm not the most expensive attorney on the block. I'm not the cheapest attorney on mm-hmm. the block. I think my prices are fair based on what other people charge. But, you know, what kind of experience does, does the attorney have? But I think even more important than that is the connection that you make with your attorney. So um, there's been plenty of clients that it just didn't feel like the right fit, and that's fine. And and I hope they find an attorney that they fit with, and I hope that they get their their issue resolved, and I hope everything turns out okay, and and they're not the right fit with me, and that's fine as well. So you know, your attorney can have all the experience in the world, but do you feel like you made a connection to your attorney? Do you feel like you know, they, they care about you. They care about your case. Do you think one of the things I've really tried to avoid, I brought on an associate attorney in June and she's been doing great. She's been doing fantastic. She's, she's learning a ton. She's helped the law firm make a lot more revenue, but I've been very conscious of it's my name on the door. The shirts say yes, no law. She's not a partner yet. And so I've had to be very conscious of, I don't want clients that where she ends up doing the work on the file. I don't want them to think that I've passed them off to her. I still, am involved in, in all the files. We, we meet monthly to make sure we're all on the same page as a staff. There's four of us here, me, the associate, uh, my assistant, and then a bankruptcy paralegal. So I'm always trying to make sure that, that I stay involved in all the cases and I know what's going on in all the cases. But, um, you know, I think the experience, I think the knowledge base, you know, for, for the real estate investors, I have owned real estate. Um, investment real estate. I, I sold it all in, in 2008 and nine when I saw the crash coming and haven't jumped back into that, that particular market yet, but I am a real estate investor. So I know what they're going through. Uh, I have dug myself out of debt. So I know what my clients are going through. I have student loans. So I know what my clients are going through. Um, I think all of that is important as well. But, but again, I think the most important piece is do you connect with the person you're Mm -hmm. trying to hire? No, that's what you just said. Everything's important, what you just said. But that last piece there, do you connect with people? Because I deal with that constantly. And and us being in business, I've said this before, we really do want everybody. We want to help as many people as we can. But also, you know, it's, you know, when you pass up, especially in construction, you pass up a house that you can make a X amount of money on. It's, it's hard. And all the time you spend on, on doing the bidding process and this and that, you just kind of cringe when you're like, all right, this isn't going to work. And that just happened with me. You know, we're not meant to work with everybody. I had to pass up this guy because I knew 
I had that gut feeling in the future. Is it really worth the money? Is it really worth your time? Because if they're going to be a pain in the future and it's going to be a lot more headaches and hard work and, you know, then just a lot more pressure on you in the future because you don't click at the beginning. Right. It's almost worth just saying, you know, best of luck to you. I hope you find the right builder and this and that and, and good luck, you know, and then the right people will come. So that's what it's all about. I'm big on what you said. Yeah. Um, let's go into you personally. I I've been asking everybody this question cause I've gotten so many great answers is, is you have built an amazing company and a brand that continues to grow every day. What lessons have you learned throughout your journey that we should all apply to our own business or lives that can help us grow? That's a, that's a really good question. I, I love that question. I may adopt that question for my show as well. Uh, one of the, one of the questions I get asked a lot when you're in some of these networking events and you, and you were going through icebreakers and whatnot, some people will say, you know, what's a piece of advice that you've received that's been impactful on you? And and those of you that really know me, my dad is a huge impact on me. I mean, he basically guided my career. I, I went into accounting because of him. I started my own business because he did. So he's been a huge impact on me. And one of the best pieces of advice that I ever got from him Uh, When opportunity knocks, you don't have to let it in, but you're a fool if you don't at least answer the door. And and the way that I've interpreted that is look at the different opportunities. You know, what different opportunities are coming up? What what can you do? I mean, we went off on a tangent of this pandemic, but there's something there to be said where, you know, I may joke about my foreclosure business is going to increase, my bankruptcy business is going to increase, but that's more to me of an opportunity to, to help a lot of people that are, that are scared right now, that are going through difficult times right now. It gives me the opportunity to help more people. And, I, and when I'm presented with different opportunities, you know, do I want to do a podcast? Do I want to do a YouTube page? Do I want to do uh, different internet type marketing? You know, again, you don't, have to, you don't have to let it in, but you're a fool if you don't at least answer the door. So let's talk about the different opportunities. You know, do I want to partner up with another attorney over here to create a different kind of law firm. What are the opportunities? What are the pros? What are the cons? You know, do I want to take on this additional line of, of business? Do I want to take on uh, chapter 11 cases? Do I want to take on probate cases, family law cases? Well, the answer may be no, but at least let's explore it and take a look at it and see what, what can develop from it. And so I think for me, that's sort of, that's a piece of advice that he gave me, my dad gave me a long time ago. And I've always tried to have that sort of playing in the back of my head as I look at, you know, what's going on? Where is the law firm going? Where are we expanding? You know, even within, so right now we've outgrown our space and I've got about a year left on my lease. My building is not, my landlord is not the most attentive landlord. There, there are some maintenance things that he could keep up on. Uh, but maybe that gives me an opportunity to pick up the neighboring suite that's been empty for two years since we moved in, uh, pick it up for very cheap considering what I pay in rent, absorb that, grow the law firm and get into a bigger space. Or is that going to hurt the law firm because that still means the building is dilapidated and and maybe we need to move entirely. So all those that I just use that as an, as an example of all the different things that fly around in my head from from day to day that prevent me from getting a full night's sleep. 
And as a usual, great answer. I mean, that question, I always get different answers, but I'm the same way as you. I mean, I'm always thinking what I can do, where I can be, you know, what I can do to better myself, the company, every single little thing, what video I can do, what podcasts I can do, especially during times like this, like you said, you know, if we are on lockdown, if they shut down the state of Florida, well, what are we going to do? Okay, let's plan ahead and do maybe we're going to do more podcasts and meet we're going to have to because we're everybody's going to be a lot more zoom calls and stuff like that and zoom calls telephone yeah. calls yeah <laughs> and more video from home you know stuff like that it's just whatever you can do to keep your business going and thriving and get ahead too because yeah unfortunately there is going to be a lot of small business that shuts down but we as business owners too have to figure out our next move. I kind of said it was like a chess game where, especially during this time, you have to figure out your next move. You can't just sit still, curl up in a corner, you know, while and have CNN or Fox news on in the background scaring you. You got to keep moving forward, you know? So whether it's true or not, you need to have a plan, execute on the plan, stay calm, move forward, Mm -hmm. stay safe. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. So, and, and my next one, I've been asking everybody to, everybody asked about your past. So I want to ask about your plans for the future, whether it's business life, where will Sean Yesner be in the future? Who will you be? Another, another really good question. Um, <laughs> part of the story that I didn't tell. So when I built the firm in 2004, in 2006, I brought on a law partner and this was right at the beginning of the Great Recession. And he and I built a law firm that ended up being about 50 people, uh, millions of dollars of revenue per year. We started absorbing different areas of law. So although I s- still stuck with the real estate aspects of it, uh, you know, we saw that a lot of our clients were getting into foreclosure because they were getting divorced. So we absorbed a family law attorney and, and brought him on board. We saw that a lot of our clients were uh, going into foreclosure because they were getting hurt. So we brought in a personal injury attorney, absorbed that into the law firm. And so we ended up building about a 50 person law firm. We had, I want to say about 10 attorneys at the height of it, again, making millions of dollars of revenue. What happened is typically what always happens. Uh, we, we started getting into, um, disputes or arguments or disagreements over the direction of the law firm. And we ended up splitting and going our separate ways. And then, that restarted Yesner Law by myself, which is what I have now. So I've ne- I've, I don't have the desire to recreate that beast. I don't want to run a law firm that is that big, uh, but I do want to grow. And mm-hmm. so my, my vision here is a, a law firm of at least four, maybe five attorneys, including me, and then as many staff as is necessary to support those attorneys, uh, whether we're in this building or not, you know, maybe we're all remote after this pandemic, who knows, but, um, you know, a, a small but uh, substantial law firm that can create a legacy, whether my boys want to become attorneys or whether I end up selling the thing and, and using that stream to retire and or who knows that part of it. Um, but I really want to, what I sort of want to do is create law firms within the law firm. So I want my associate to have her own book of business that is then supported by the law firm so that she doesn't have to do the admin. The next associate that comes on board, same thing, have them uh, have their own book of business that they're working, but we're all collaborating together. I think one of the biggest frustrations for me is 
I don't have another attorney that I can bounce ideas off of unless I give them a call on the phone. So, so to create that type of a law firm where we can work together, we can work with each other, we can bounce ideas off of each other. We're all creating our own independent books and, and, and making the entire law firm more valuable. That's probably where I see the law firm going is, is something, you know, not too big, but enough that, that, uh, you know, I can, I can take some vacations and, <laughs> and sort of relax a little bit, get my student loans paid off, you know, all that kind of stuff. Awesome. Yeah. Great answer. And so last question, this is what this show's all about. What exactly do people need to look for when hiring an attorney and why should they choose Sean Yesner as their attorney of choice? Well, I think we covered a lot of it already. <laughs> um, you know, make sure that, that, you know, I'm not going to, tell you the answer because I want to make your money. I'm going to tell the answer that I think is best for you. And, and it may not be uh, good news, but I'm going, to, I'm going to shoot it to you straight and we'll figure out a solution. And I'm not here to blow up the deal. I'm here to get the deal done if we can. Um, and, you know, when looking for an attorney, again, it, it comes down to due diligence. You know, check out the attorney. Uh, check out if they have reviews. Do they have you know, everything that I've said, the book, the podcast, the YouTube channel, what's going on on social media, uh, do your due diligence in terms of the attorney that you're hiring. Um, you know, if they offer a free consultation, which most do, especially in this area of law, take advantage of the free consultation, meet with the attorney. What kind of feeling do you get from the attorney? Um, you know, again, I know that I've done a good job when people leave here and say that they feel like a weight's been lifted or they feel like they can go home and sleep tonight. That's when I know the consultation went well. I may not get that client, but at least I know the consultation went well. Awesome, Sean. Yeah, this has been great, man. A lot of great information. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Last thing, where can people find and connect with you? Everything uh, revolves around the website. So it's yesnerlaw.com. Yesner has one S in it, Y-E-S-N-E-R law.com. Everything revolves around the website. So the, the social media links are on the website. The podcast links are on the website. Uh, the blog is on the website. Now, the podcast is also uh, on all the major, so Apple and Stitcher and Spotify and all the artificial intelligence ladies love me. Uh, so uh, that you can find that everywhere. But I think everything starts around the website. Even if you want to contact me, have questions for me, there's that contact button on the website. That'll come directly to me as well. So everything starts at yesnerlaw.com and it's sort of bicycle spokes out from there. Awesome. Everybody go check that out. And Sean, I really do appreciate you coming on, man. This is great. A lot of great info as far as real estate and construction, what people need to do. I learn stuff as always. That's why I love doing this show. I really yeah. appreciate it. I appreciate it. I learned something too. I picked up a couple of questions that I'm going to insert into my <laughs> repertoire here. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Thanks again. And thanks guys for listening. And I'll see you guys on the next one. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Real Build. And guys, if you would just take a little bit of your time to write a review below, I'd really appreciate it. It doesn't take long. Obviously, reviews are going to make this show be heard by more people. And that's what we need. We need to get this out there. So please write a review, share it with your friends and family. And thank you so much for everybody that's listening. And I'll see you guys on the next episode.